0: For our Scripture reading this evening, we turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 5. And we're going to read the first 29 verses. Worth noting while you're finding that how frequently and often the Gospel according to John addresses the issue of the everlasting life. It's going to be the subject of almost the entire next chapter also but we recently read that so we back up a chapter and go to chapter 5 and you'll notice the theme there also. It runs through the book as a common thread. Let's read the first 29 verses. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had, And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, "'Wilt thou be made whole?' The impotent man answered him, "'Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I am coming,' Another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. They asked, Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come up unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life." and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We read that far in the Word of God. And consider this evening, Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Two questions and answers there. What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein for <clears throat> Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 22 marks the end of the catechism's treatment of the Apostles' Creed itself in that each of these questions and answers deals with the last two of the articles of our Apostles' Creed. It is good, therefore, even as we reach an end of the instruction of the Catechism on the Apostles Creed to remember that thereby we also reach the end of the exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit that ever since its treatment of the article I believe the Holy Spirit the Catechism has been treating that work and life of the Holy Spirit, and throughout has been even explicit in making that clear to us that when we confess the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins, we're dealing with the great work of the Holy Spirit. And it's worth remembering that this applies also here and is worth remembering also because It's not explicit in this particular Lord's Day. Nevertheless, the Heidelberg Catechism makes clear that it views the subject matter of the life everlasting to be something that is closely related, therefore, to the Holy Spirit. And it does so when it says that we are raised by the power of Christ. And if you will recall previous expositions of the Catechism and other sermons, the power of Christ is simply a term and phrase that is to be applied to the Spirit. When one thinks of the Spirit, one ought to think of the power of Christ and vice versa. There are a couple of other things that are worth noting too as we get into this Lord's Day. Especially in the light of a confession of faith. And that is, we are not simply dealing with doctrine or truths, but doctrines and truths that we confess and confess because we believe them. The article is I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I believe the life everlasting. That's brought out even in the next Lord's Day when speaking of the summary of the Catechism and the the summary of the Apostles' Creed asks the question, what's the profit of believing all this? This is a good reminder to us that among the many things that we confess, when we confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, when we confess that we are saved, when we confess that we believe is that this includes believing the resurrection of the body and believing the life everlasting but it's even more important to take note that according to the catechism the subject matter here of the life everlasting isn't simply something that one awaits for in the future To be true, the catechism following Holy Scripture does speak of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting as a perfection of salvation in the future. That I now feel that after this life, that is in the future, after my death, I shall inherit perfect salvation. In other words, there's something imperfect about salvation as we experience it right now. Nevertheless, one must not take that phrase this way, that I have no salvation, nor that I have no eternal life now. Catechism makes perfectly clear that we have that salvation and we have that eternal life already now. And we're going to take note of that this evening. Notice also in the catechism the connection between everlasting life and salvation. When we speak of salvation and think of salvation, we think of deliverance. We think of being delivered from bondage, from trouble, from oppression, from misery. But one must never think of salvation without also thinking of eternal life. Salvation may be thought of as being delivered from something, but also to something. One is delivered from something unto something. And this particular Lord's Day makes clear that salvation and eternal life are bound together. That to speak of salvation is to speak of eternal life. To speak of being saved from sin and death one must also speak of being delivered, therefore, unto sinlessness and everlasting life. And then one more thing to take note of that we will mention in the sermon is that this deliverance, this faith in the eternal life, is experienced primarily as joy, as joy. It doesn't say, I feel now in my heart everlasting life, or I feel now in my heart this salvation, which would be true, but it expresses the feeling of that everlasting life and that salvation in terms of joy, even eternal joy. In other words, as those who believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we ought be and are Christians who live in everlasting joy. Consider with me then this article of faith, I believe, life everlasting. And we notice in the first place this life everlasting at regeneration, then at death, and then finally at the coming of Christ. You will notice, of course, that the treatment of this material by your pastor this evening is backwards is backwards from what is found in the apostles creed and therefore in the catechism you will notice furthermore that i have an entire first point in the sermon this evening on what appears to be a rather minor point in the treatment of these two articles When the first point speaks of this everlasting life at regeneration, I am referring to what the catechism speaks about when it says, I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. A rather seemingly minor point in the treatment of the catechism And one that doesn't seem to speak at all about eternal life and certainly not regeneration, but that is exactly the reference that is being made. If you were to ask yourself, why now do I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy? If I were to ask, when did that occur? Why is it a beginning? And why is it the feeling of eternal joy? What explains all this? The answer in brief is simply this. That at a moment in time, for many of us, for some of us, that could have occurred in yet our mother's womb, or yet as a child, we were regenerated. And furthermore, the idea is that this regeneration is the beginning of eternal life. It is the granting and the giving of eternal life. And since it is the beginning and granting of eternal life, it is known and experienced as eternal joy. Those elements are what explains what the catechism means what it says that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Now why I have moved that to the beginning of my sermon is to emphasize a point that we easily overlook and forget and easily overlooking and forgetting it, we may forfeit one of the great wonders and even the joy of this eternal life now. And what is that? When we speak these articles and we think about such things as the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, it's that we simply view them as future benefits. We look at them as something we will receive in the future. And not only that, but we disconnect them. Like there is a void, a chasm, between my life now and your life now, and what I experience in this life, and what I feel in this life, and what I have in this life, and even the salvation that I'm given in this life, and what's coming in the future after my death so that one even views these articles this way, that what it's speaking about is benefits that I don't have now really in any sense whatsoever other than I'm assured of them. There is a benefit there that such is faith that I know without a shadow of a doubt that in the future when I die I shall be raised in the body at some point at Christ's coming. And then also is when I begin to enjoy the life everlasting. And that's wrong. That's wrong. That's simply wrong. And perhaps that's what explains then why we view our life sometimes the way we do. Why, for example, we fail to have joy in this life. Or we fail to see what joy is we do have, and what God gives us. This can even lead, for example, to a complete misunderstanding about what regeneration is, and what it accomplishes, and what it's all about. So this is important for us to consider, and by considering it first, I desire to impress greatly upon you this evening this notion that your salvation not only begins, but your salvation consists of one thing, the gift of everlasting life. That if you are saved, then you have this gift. there will be a manifestation and even a perfection of it in the future but it is given now there are not two or three or four eternal lives but there's only one and that eternal life is given to you when you are regenerated or born again now There are some implications of this that are worth noting and one I will try to remain brief about because after examining the bulletin and the material of Reverend Spronk, I think he mowed a whole pile of my grass this morning, made alive in Christ. And I can about imagine that his sermon was about the life of the old man and the life of the new man. And I'm going to put it this way, that what this Lord's Day teaches us is that on the one hand, we live an earthly, physical life in the body of the soul. life The Bible calls the life of our flesh or the life of our old man. And we ought to understand what this is in comparison to the everlasting life. We need to separate these two. We need to distinguish these two. We we need to, as Christians, understand that this is a real life that we live. This earthly, present, physical life. It's a life given to us from God. It is a gift. We live that life for a certain number of years according to His sovereign good pleasure. In this life, We are born. We grow up. We mature. We have children. We marry. We die eventually. The Scriptures teach that this is also a life that is thoroughly corrupted. A life that is morally corrupted. So that in this life we commit many sins. There are many inclinations within us at all times contrary to the law of God. A life that is selfish. A life that is proud. And as long as we are alive in this life, There is no end to sin in it. We ourselves in this life never stop sinning. Sin is never improved. It never becomes less. We are never less corrupt with regard to our actions and our thoughts. Do you understand that? That earthly physical life of the flesh and the life we live in it never changes, never improves, never gets better. And it's not good at all. There's no good in it whatsoever. None. In that life, all we do is sin. And thus, it's also a life that must end in death, according to God's judgment, the wages of sin. By one man death entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. We must die in that life because exactly because in that life dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7.18 And besides that, this life, this earthly physical life, the life of that flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Do we understand that about ourselves? And when we view ourselves, do we view ourselves that way? Thus, the body also is included. The flesh includes the body. So what occurs? God's judgment. God's plan for our life in that body always about that flesh always includes the body it means the human body must die the human body must go to the grave the human body in that flesh must deteriorate and turn back to dust this is the word of God dust thou art and dust thou shalt return that's one life you may call it life but it's really nothing but a continual death It's not that the continual death is simply out there somewhere, that this world is a world of continual death, but you live a life of continual death. But then there is another life, a heavenly spiritual life, a life that is called in this article, everlasting life. It's not just that it's heavenly. It's not just that it's spiritual. It's not something really even that we might say is a certain Invisible life. But what we need to see is it is the everlasting life. The everlasting life. That life too is the gift of God. And it is given to us not not necessarily when we are born into this world. But nevertheless, when it is given to us, the Scriptures denote it as a birth. A rebirth. Being born again. The other great word for this is called regeneration. That is, a re-enlivening. A re Our creeds, the canons, 3, 4, article 12, one of the great great values of that creed is its statements on this very subject, regeneration. Let me read you this. And this is the regeneration, notice these words, so highly celebrated in Scripture. The question, of course, is do we highly celebrate it as Scripture does? And denominated, called a new creation, a resurrection from the dead. Notice that, a resurrection from the dead, a making alive which God works in us without our aid. Striking, isn't it? that the main pictures of regeneration, we might immediately think of being born again, are actually being made alive. Being raised from the dead. And if you ask now why that is, the answer is because it's the same everlasting life, the same eternal life with which we are raised from the dead in the body and that we enjoy in heaven and later body and soul in a new creation. It's the same life. It's the same thing, no different. Now, it too is a moral life. It's a life that's not simply lived by doing things and being active, which is important. Anyone that wants to maintain the Christian who has this life is simply a passive creature and is a passive creature only because this is a gift and work of God as we read in the canons without our aid and thus some conclude that we are passive that cannot be because that's not the nature of life. One of the benefits of living a physical earthly life is that it is the type of the other. And one of the things that we learn about earthly physical life is it's a very busy, active life. Now in that activity and in that labor and in all we do, we sin, 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 and sin, but nevertheless... That's the biblical picture of the everlasting life. It is a life that is very busy, in which we are very active and active in mind and heart and will and soul, which is why we refer to it as a moral life. It is not the life of a worm or an ant or a plant or a tree. It is the life of a rational, moral creature. Thus, we say, a moral life. A life, that is, which is lived before the face of God. It is lived in relationship to God. It is lived in connection to God. 1 John 3, verse 9 indicates that the morality of that life is perfect. When we read in the Catechism about a perfect salvation in the future, do not misunderstand What the Scriptures teach about this everlasting life is that it is perfect. That is, it is a life without sin. There is no sin in this life whatsoever. There are no errors. There are no weaknesses. There are no mistakes. It is the same everlasting, perfect, therefore, life of heaven and in the future, heaven and earth it's no different and we have to understand that too the idea is that if there is any good thing in us which there is when we are regenerated that is to be attributed to this life it belongs to the living of that life and therefore any sin any weakness any affliction is to be attributed not to this life but that other life. And this is the life of the Holy Spirit. The idea of Scripture is that this is not simply a life that is animated by the Spirit, that it is a life empowered by the Spirit, although there's truth to that. That's brought out when it says we are raised by the power of Christ, but you have to dig just a little deeper. And understand that there's a similarity with regard to even your earthly physical life. When we speak about your spirit, we don't refer to a sort of other thing within you that's moving and pushing you, but we're referring to the very life itself. It is a life of your spirit, lived in your spirit and by your spirit. And that's the idea of the everlasting life. It is the result of the Spirit coming and residing in you. And the result is not only does God dwell in you, but you dwell in God. And the result is that you therefore have the very Spirit of God, to be more precise, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ in you. And that is the life you are living. Everything is to be attributed to Him except one amazing thing, and that is you become the subject of all that activity. That is the amazing wonder of this everlasting life. It's not given to me simply as a gift in the sense that it can be withdrawn, or it's a third thing, but it's mine. It is attached and works through myself as a person so that I become the subject of those very works and actions that are empowered and worked by the Spirit Himself. And why we read what we do in the Scriptures, that a child of God who lives this life can confess as we heard this evening, and as we all confessed, I believe. I believe. That's the confession of the Holy Spirit through you and so attached to you that you truly believe. That's the amazing character of this life. Now we're going to go on to see, of course, that this life has other characteristics. Not only is it a perfect life morally, but it's an immortal life. It's a life that cannot die. That is, it cannot be taken away. It cannot falter. It does not fail. Amazing things. But I want to shift focus just a little bit yet in this first point to point out a few things from the Catechism about it. And that is, this is something according to the Catechism that we feel in our hearts. Now I want to make a point of this Because especially as a result of the schism and the doctrines that were involved, suspicion was placed upon the Christian experience. The Protestant Reformed were even charged with teaching a conditional Christian experience. Oh, it was said, we believe in an unconditional covenant, we believe in an unconditional salvation, but we believe in a conditional experience. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. In the process, experience, however, was minimized. Perhaps it became something even with us that we were afraid to talk about, to say this is something we experience. But the Catechism speaks that language. And I want you to notice that. If you ever want to understand the relationship between the objective and the subjective, and what we speak and what we say doctrinally and then what we feel, one needs to go to this Lord's Day and notice that the everlasting life is presented as something you feel. And I want you to understand that the idea there is not simply something that we feel, such as what we feel with our fingers and with our hands due to our nerves, but there are such a thing as spiritual nerves and muscles that we feel in the sense of experience, and that experience is the Christian reality. In other words, all that we believe isn't and never ever mere doctrine. Objective facts. But those objective facts come to life. They live within us, and we live the very truth that we believe and it's something we feel we experience that's an amazing thing and by the way worth noting too is it's the one experience and feeling that you can count on we rightly ought to be nervous about and we ought to be distrustful about our earthly physical feelings of that other life we live Those subjective feelings and experiences are often wrong, corrupted, just like what we know and what we live in that life, sinful. But the experience of the everlasting life is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. So much so that there is assurance and confidence that comes in that experience. Again, this correlates to a lot of things, even with earthly physical life. If you would ask me, how is it, Reverend, that you know you have this everlasting life? How do you know that you've been regenerated? How do you know that the Spirit dwells with you? The answer is, well, I feel it. I experience it. That is not making the experience conditional. It's simply pointing out the obvious. That a person who is alive is alive. A person who is alive moves and they breathe. And they, they look and they feel and they, they eat and they drink. That's what they do. That doesn't make them alive, but that's what they do because they're alive. And that's worth noting here. If your Christian life is simply something that you sort of know intellectually, it's a matter of reciting the right phrases and the right words. Even if, for example, your idea of what faith is and what it believes is simply knowing the correct formulation of justification by faith, but it doesn't translate to experience, there's no life there. It's not real. It's just simply knowing something intellectually and no different really than knowing mathematics or science. The knowledge of the Christian faith is always the knowledge of love and experience and of life. Why? Because it is that life. And in the second place, I want to emphasize something else, which is, If one could summarize that experience, if one had to summarize that feeling, that experience, one word will suffice. The word joy. That is an amazing statement by the catechism here. When it says that my experience of the everlasting life and the beginning of it now in regeneration can be summarized by one word, if I were to ask you that question, how would you answer we might be inclined to say by by knowledge it's it's felt in, in, in the form of being able to know the truths of scripture it's it, it's it's experienced by knowing uh, reading the bible and, and understanding it. it it's it's experienced in a, in a form of comfort or, or peace there, there's a lot of things that we could say there, and they would be true but notice the catechism here summarizes it all as joy now one reason I want to bring that to your attention is because I want you to see here a connection to something that's coming ahead, which is the relationship to conversion. There's a close relationship between regeneration and conversion. Very close relationship. In fact, sometimes in the creeds, those words are even used interchangeably. But if you want to see the connection very plainly, take note with what's coming, that conversion will be defined in part as joy. In fact, worth bringing up because it's related to the sermon that you had this morning, which is, what is conversion? It's the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new. Notice the killing or death of the old and the enlivening of the new. And what is the quickening of the new? It is a sincere joy of heart. See the connection? Eternal life in this Lord's day is put in terms of joy. And if you think that's strange, then jump ahead to the Lord's day on conversion and notice conversion is put in the same terms. What is the quickening? What is the enlivening? Now notice, not simply what is the result of the quickening, what is the result of the enlivening of the new man? Notice that. Now you could speak in those terms. What's the result of regeneration? What's... what's What's the end of it? What follows after it? And you could say joy, but notice in the catechism, it's defined as the life of the new man. Now that's instructive. How is it instructive? Well, if I had to ask you, well, what is this eternal life that you speak about? What is it? What is it? And the answer is joy. Joy. The one reason I emphasize that is because the Scriptures here are teaching us something very fundamental. and That is, if we are born again, and we've been given the gift of eternal life by God, even if it's a beginning, then we will have and must find in our life joy. What should characterize us as Christians is not being depressed and anxious, being bitter, finding all signs of faults, dwelling on what's wrong, being sad and being down and filled with sorrow, but joy. Now that doesn't mean those other things won't exist. But if they exist, they ought to be related to the other life. They they will have something to do with the death of the other life, the mortification of the old. That's why that's put in terms of sorrow. What is the mortification of the old man? We're going to find out. It is a sorrow. A sorrow chiefly over sin, but related to is all the sorrows that come with earthly physical life. But what ought to characterize us, what ought to be the essence of our life, is joy. Now, exactly because of the nature of that life, there are two things that follow. Two important things that follow. Which is, in the first place, there is a life everlasting when I die. Now what we ought to notice is, again, it's the same life. It's not like this, that when I die... That something is given to me I didn't have before. That something is given to me that I didn't experience before. No, it's the same life. I'm just going to experience it in a different way. Now, how does that work? What's going on? Well, we talk about death. That means something is going to die. What's going to die is your flesh. What's going to die is that old man. What's going to be put to death is that old man. That's going to be mortified. And that will be experienced especially with regard to the body. That's especially how that is experienced. And is that not true? Is that not how we relate death? Is that not how we define death and notice death? The body is dead. There is no more activity. There's no more life there. There's there's no more thinking there. There's no more speaking. There's no more hearing there. There's no blood pumping there anymore. Now strikingly, even as we noticed we live two lives now, we're going to notice that especially at death with regard to the body. And interestingly now, And reflecting the very truth we just laid out, the Bible therefore often refers to that as sleep. That's an amazing thing all by itself. It is true, the body dies, but the scripture says we are asleep in that body. And many, many texts speak about that. Jesus said about Lazarus, don't worry, he's just sleeping. Now, some conclude by that, well, that means that that's all that's going on. Their soul is sleeping too. They're sleeping, body and soul. Some even say that that's all they'll ever be there in a state forever of a certain sleep. Others say, no, no, when Christ returns, they'll wake up. But that's all that they experience. Now, that's not true. What the Scriptures are referring to is the life in that body that is in that body that we sleep. As to the soul, something else amazingly happens. Exactly because we have that life now, something mysterious and wonderful happens with regard to our soul. Our soul goes to heaven immediately. Those who do not live that life, those who do not have that everlasting life, go in their soul to hell immediately. They're separated from their body And as to their earthly physical life, which is the only life they have, they are dead. That's all they are is dead. If they had any illusions and any thinking in themselves that their so-called life was going to improve when they died, they're going to find out that's not the case. But as to the believer who has this life of regeneration... He goes to live immediately with Christ. That's what Christ Himself said to the thief on the cross, as clear as it could be said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not sleeping, but alive, consciously living in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that even death cannot separate us from the love of Christ, ever. Now why does the Bible call it sleep? Well, very simple, to comfort us. It's talking about a dead body. (laughs) That's what it's talking about. talking about the dead body of a Christian. And one thing we know about sleep is that we're not dead when we're asleep. There, there, there's a life there. So even though we're not moving, e- even though if you look at that person and, and you didn't examine them further, you, you'd say they're dead. They're, they're actually alive. That's a comfort to us. The child of God, while he's laying in the grave, and even though his body is returning back to dust, even though worms are destroying that body, he's still alive. There's life, even, we might say, in that body. Not only that, but the Bible uses that term to remind us that just like sleep, it's for our benefit. When we go to sleep, we are refreshed when we wake up. And it goes by so quickly. That's all to give us comfort with regard to our body. Yes, some terrible things are going to happen there in that grave. It's dark. It's deep. It's lonely. But don't fear. As to your body, you're only sleeping. You will wake up refreshed, and it's going to go by in a snap. But in our soul, we live before the face of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't happen automatically either. The soul must go through quite a change. We sinned in our soul. Our soul is also earthly. It is a certain physical soul. It is of the earth, earthy, And so it must be changed. It must be purged of its sin. It must be sanctified. It must go through, according to Revelation 20, a resurrection. It will be changed in a twinkling of an eye so that it can be fit to live in heaven. That too is part of this resurrection life, this eternal life. But that's not the end of it. What's amazing is the one thing that we often forget. We often talk about life after death in heaven, don't we? It seems to consume a lot of our discussions when we talk about when we die. We talk about going to heaven, living to heaven, being with the Lord in heaven, which are all wonderful things. We talk about what's heaven going to be like. And the fact of the matter, it's only temporary. It's even called the intermediate state in Reformed theology because it's temporary, it's not the end, the ultimate end, the perfection of this everlasting life. Oh, no, that must wait until Christ returns, because it's then that He raises us from the dead. He raises me, and He raises you from the dead. And He does that by raising us in our bodies. He calls us forth from the grave. Then we will be judged before him, something Christ himself refers to in John 5. Notice there how he connects the resurrection with the judgment and the fact that Christ or God the Father gives him judgment so that men honor him. And then after that, we enjoy life not in heaven, but in the earth, in a new creation, not only in our soul, but body. And soul that's the great wonder of God that's what the Bible is referring to when it says the eye hath not seen nor ear heard neither has it entered into the heart of man to conceive what talking about that life and now you understand perhaps why the catechism calls it the perfection of our salvation we inherit perfect salvation And if you doubt that, simply think about what you have now. And the best you can say is, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Oh, it's real salvation. It's a wonderful salvation. And in many ways, you can say it's a perfect salvation, but it's not what's coming. What's coming is beyond your imagination, even your regenerated mind, to conceive. It's only received by faith. It's an article of faith. It's what we confess. I believe in everlasting life and life now in the body. The unbeliever will never receive that. Just like the unbeliever will never receive Jesus Christ come in our flesh. There's a connection there. Connection to confession of faith. It's no easier to confess one than the other. But oftentimes, unbelief with regard to God manifests itself with regard to belief about the resurrection of the body. And by the way, you could test that. Perhaps you know people who confess to be Christians and they don't confess the truth of the Word of God about a number of doctrinal truths. Perhaps creation, let's say. And if you press them on that, they'll say, well, that's not a salvation issue. It's not all that important. What you believe about creation. Ask them a question once about the resurrection of the body. And you might be shocked how many people who go to church, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be saved, who can confess all kinds of things about Jesus, do not believe the resurrection of the body. That means then they have no conception either of what real life everlasting is, and therefore also no conception of salvation as everlasting life. If you push a little further, you might find that their idea of salvation and what Christ saves us from is all kinds of earthly, physical things that have nothing to do with everlasting life whatsoever. In fact, if you push them and speak about a life everlasting body and soul with Christ and all the saints and only saints, they may express some disappointment, severe disappointment. But the child of God delights in and makes his confession, indeed the last two articles of his confession, I believe, life everlasting. And why? Because that's his joy. That's his joy now. There is no joy in this earth apart from that joy. And That's what he delights in, and that's what he looks forward to, and that's what he gives praise and honor to God for. Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, we give thanks for the great gift of everlasting life, a life that we feel now in our heart in terms of joy. And we thank Thee for faith that we may believe in the life with Jesus Christ in our soul upon the death of of our earthly physical life. And look forward also then to the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in a new heavens and earth with our Lord who so loves us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.